we do this almost every Sunday, and it's a balancing act. How much do you recap in order to kind of get a running head start without reiterating last Sunday's Bible study? And to do this, we kind of at least bring up two points to set some context. Because when you're traveling verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through a book of the Bible, context is always important. And there are two contextual details that are crucial, critical for our understanding of the section of Scripture we'll be looking at, beginning with verse 23. First, Jesus, beginning around chapter 9, has wrapped up, concluded his Galilean ministry. He's on his way, making a direct and deliberate journey towards Jerusalem with the disciples to celebrate the Feast of Passover. As he's making his way, there's a multitude traveling with him, Jesus takes the opportunities that are presented to teach, to instruct, knowing his time is short, knowing the events that are coming there in Jerusalem. Jesus utilizes these final moments to be able to communicate some important truths. And last Sunday, we looked at an interesting occasion. This young man who is rich, who is a ruler, he comes to Jesus with a desperation, a desperation fostered by his emptiness, knowing he was lacking something. He had everything, but he was empty. He knew it. He recognized it. And he comes to Jesus with an important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And obviously, this flowed with the lesson that Jesus had previously taught, talking about that we inherit the kingdom of God, not by what we do or by works or by actions or by deeds, but it's rather about receiving the kingdom, not earning it. And here comes the rich young ruler wanting to know what he must do. And Jesus, he gives him an instruction to sell all that he had and to give it to the poor. And Jesus is not giving him something to do. He's encouraging him to let go of what was his idol. Because ultimately his wealth and his possessions were an indicator of God's favor by his dedication and his work and what he was doing to earn the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, in order for you to inherit the kingdom, you've got to let go of you. And then Jesus invites him, knowing that we can't replace an idol, Self cannot dethrone self or it would wear the victor's crown. You can't remove your idol. Rather, you must replace it. You must supplant whatever's on the throne of your life with something greater, that being Jesus. And so Jesus says, you need to let go. Sell what you have and then follow me. Take up your cross, knowing that you'll have treasure in heaven. But we're told, and this is unique, a man coming to Jesus with a sincere heart, in a desperation, in an emptiness, coming to Jesus, wanting Jesus to work, wanting to provide instruction, Jesus doing so, but turning away and departing and leaving. Why? For he had many possessions. A unique occasion of someone coming to Jesus in a sincere heart, encountering Jesus in a sincere way, receiving instruction from Jesus in truth, but then leaving. Leaving. Now, at this moment, Jesus looked around, verse 23, and he said to his disciples, so the rich young ruler has just left. He's just departed the scene. And Jesus says to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, they were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again, and he said to them, children, 
how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now Jesus here, he makes two statements that on the surface might seem as though he's just reiterating the same point. But there is a subtlety, a distinction between the two statements I want to point out right from the beginning. He says, and note, how hard it is for those, and then you might want to underline this, who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus, after they're astonished at his words, he makes a second statement. He says, how hard it is for those who what? Trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Very similar, but distinct enough. And I think the reason in context to the rich young ruler is that Jesus is making here two important separate points. His first point, well, you can rearrange some of the words of Jesus' own statement. His first point is that it is hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. You can't sugarcoat this. This is what he's saying. How hard it is. It is hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And this statement, before we delve into it, it astonished the disciples. This is what we're told. And why? And this culture, as we noted with the rich young ruler, and this society, riches and wealth and health were viewed as the two most basic indicators of God's blessings, God's approval, and God's favor. Monetary accumulation was viewed in this Jewish religious society as being God's stamp of approval. On the opposite end, being poor, being sick, was viewed in society as evidence of sin and judgment. I like to call this theology theological karma. The idea that if I do good things, if I put good things out there, God brings those good things back. But if I do bad things and I put bad things out there, God brings those things back. Theological karma. That God, the one calling the shots, is rewarding and punishing, and we can see this in an obvious way. This is a very popular theological religious belief today. We have the prosperity movement. We have the health and wealth movement. Most of the people that you'll see on the television expound a similar theology. Monetary accumulation, a big house and a Rolex and, and, and a Benz, all of these things... Money and wealth are an indicator of God's approval. Health, an indicator of God's approval. But if you're poor, or if bad things happen, or if health takes a turn, well, then that's an indicator of some kind of sin, some kind of judgment. God's punishing it out. It's interesting, by the way, that most of the pastors that preach such theology are the only ones really getting rich. Like they're really the only ones making the buck and everybody else is just kind of trying to work their way to whatever the pastor is, which by the way is all by design. The pastor presents this presentation of himself as what you could be if you were as holy as he. It's sad. Now Jesus' handling of the rich young ruler, of anyone that would be the poster child for a theological karma, the rich young ruler would be it. But in Jesus' handling of this man, 
he illustrates two fundamental problems with the outlook. First, this idea of theological karma, it lacks theological consistency. Then that's important because here's the problem. The problem is that there is kind of certain theological positions or stances or even verses and doctrines that might indicate that this is really how it works. You see, it's true that monetary blessings and health and wealth was an indicator of God's pleasure with Israel. It's also true in many instances, sickness and poverty were an indicator in the Old Testament of God's displeasure. Most of the time when you listen to prosperity preachers, they'll reference back to Old Testament promises that God gave Israel that they, after removing Israel and inserting the church, claim that applies to them. And so this is where it gets murky, it gets convoluted, because there is theology. There are verses that says that that when Israel, you examine the judges, right? When Israel was obedient, God showered them with blessings. When Israel was disobedient, God brought in poverty and famine and opposition, persecution. Things got tough. And we see illustrations of this in the Old Testament, but here's the problem. The problem is that these things were never established by God as a universal indicator of God's pleasure or displeasure. And it's impossible to establish a biblical model of theistic karma. Why? Though you can cherry pick verses here and there to try to develop some kind of an idea, this presentation, Scripture is equally true or honest, sometimes even brutally so, with example after example after example of this, of bad things happening to righteous people and good things happening to wicked people, which flows against the entire notion. You see, yes, you can find examples of it, but theologically it's not consistent. Why? Well, Joseph. Joseph was a slave in Egypt. I mean, his life stunk. One bad thing after another bad thing after another bad thing, and each time the bad thing's happening. Moses is clear in the story in Genesis that he was blameless, that he was innocent, that he was righteous. Job, the entire story of Job is an example of a man who the first two chapters God brags about as being a righteous man. There's no doubt about it. And yet what happens? Everything gets taken from him. Not just his monetary blessings or his his money or his wealth or his riches, but his health. Bad things happen to Job. So wait a second. Theological karma. You look at the Old Testament prophets, all of which were poor, all of which ended up being persecuted, all of which were rejected, but all of which were righteous and being used by God. And then you get to the New Testament. Jesus was not wealthy. Paul, not wealthy. Good grief. All of these, the patriarchs of our faith, so to speak, ended up finding themselves in difficult circumstances, in tough scenarios, giving up the riches of earth, looking for an inheritance in heaven. It's hard, and this is the problem with theistic karma. 
is that there's not a theological consistency to validate the theology. Now, there's another problem. The other problem is that it fosters a false sense of security. Outward morality, and we learn this with the rich young ruler, outward morality is no more an indicator of inward morality than outward blessing, an indicator of God's favor. But if you have this mindset that blessing monetarily, riches and wealth and health are an indicator of God's favor, then it becomes circular and you deceive yourself. This is what was the problem with the rich young ruler. He couldn't let go of his wealth. He couldn't let go of his money. Why? Because it was rooted to his identity and how he was earning his, his favor, earning God's favor, earning God's blessing, and he couldn't detach himself from the security therein. His wealth was so intertwined with his self-righteousness and moralism that he even went so far as rejecting the invitation to follow Jesus. You see, theistic karma is devastating because it promotes works-based instead of faith-based salvation. I'm earning God's favor versus receiving God's favor. It establishes self-righteousness over Jesus' imparted righteousness. And it lulls us into a false sense of security. And you know what else it does? It misrepresents God. Because the person who has this outlook or attends a church that expounds, expounds such doctrine when bad things inevitably happen, and they do, we internalize it. We personalize it. That God must be punishing me. That God isn't pleased with me. When it's not the case. And you can't establish a biblical doctrine to illustrate it. You see, so many people, I think, get turned off to God because of this notion. And when bad things happen, who do they blame? They blame God, and it's sad. But Jesus makes another statement. He says, it is hard for those who trust in riches. It's hard for those who have riches, and then it's hard for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And it should be pointed out that Jesus is not saying that there's anything wrong with being wealthy. I know some wealthy people that are godly. I know some poor people that are godly. I know some, some poor people that are, that are, that you just kind of want to punch from time to time. You know, some poor people that are just jerks. I also know rich people that are jerks. You see, money is amoral. It's not good. It's not bad. It's all up to how you utilize it or what you do with it. You know, there are, and you can run through the list. It's interesting. A lot of wealthy people in the Bible Wealthy people that later on in Hebrews were told were people of faith. Abraham, one of the wealthiest people on the planet during that day. And then his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, also very wealthy people. Joseph, yes, though he started in poverty. When it was all said and done, he becomes the number two most powerful person in Egypt, right? During the season where Egypt was probably the most powerful nation on the planet. Joseph was wealthy. David, King David, was also wealthy. You can run through the list. Wealth isn't necessarily a bad thing. But what is Jesus addressing? He says, it is hard for those who trust in riches. 
You see, Jesus is not addressing wealth or riches in and of themselves. He's addressing, he's warning, he's cautioning our heart towards wealth and riches. And why? Well, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus had already made it clear for where your treasure is, where? There your heart will be also. If my treasure in he- is in heaven, that my, my heart's in heaven. But if my treasure is in my bank account, or in the automobile in the parking lot, if my treasure is my stuff, then guess what's also there? Your heart. You know, if money is viewed as a tool, if you view money as a tool given to you by God to be used for the furtherance of his kingdom, then you're trusting God and not your riches. Your riches are nothing more than a tool that God's given you for ministry. However, if money is viewed as something you've earned with the purpose of providing future security, present comfort, not that those things are bad, but if you view your wealth as what you've earned, as what you've knuckled down to attain to provide you security and comfort, then it's very likely that you're trusting in your money instead of your God. Let me give you an easy litmus test that you can judge your heart concerning your your riches. And and let's be honest, why are we bringing this up? (laughs) Because Jesus did. And why is it deserving of our attention? Because those who have riches and those who trust in riches, it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. So this is a big deal. And so we want to make sure that our riches, our money, our wealth, no matter what we have or don't have, what we do obtain and possess, we want to make sure we have everything, our heart positioned correctly. And so let me give you a litmus test. For whether or not you have the proper perspective of money, whether it's been given to you by God or whether you've earned it. And before you say, well, of course I earned it. Well, who gave you the ability or the smarts or the ingenuity? God gives and God takes away. It's all the Lord's. So whether or not you view your money as given by God or earned by you, the easy litmus test is do you tithe? I mean, really, when it's all said and done, money, tithing, it's it's an issue of obedience, of faith, of stewardship, of worship. It's saying my entire, all 100% of that paycheck, Jesus is yours. And to show my faith, I'm just going to give you 10% back knowing, trusting. You could do more with 90 than I can with 100. And maybe if, if, if you're really in that position and you're like, you know what, I believe God can do more with 50% of my paycheck than I can do with 100. It's all the Lord's. And it's trusting him. Now, trust me, this is not a money grab by your pastor on Mother's Day, which would be awkward. We're just kind of covering the section of Scripture that we're in. But here's the deal. D.L. Moody made this statement, and I think it's so true, that you can learn more about a man by looking at his checkbook than you can by glancing at his prayer book. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And are you trusting God with your money, with your finances, Now, I want to note, because sometimes we sit back, talk about the rich, and we're like, yeah, yeah, get them. They got too much. They should be given back anyway. And we like to classify who the rich are, noting 
that we often classify who the rich are without including us. It's those one percenters, right? The 99, we're all poor. It's those one percent that they need to give back. They need to contribute more. Like, when we talk about the rich, we always, everyone's guilty of it, we always place the rich in context of being someone else. That's not me. And so we hear messages about the rich, and we're like, yeah, totally, Zach, completely agree. Get them. They need to hear it. Now, why do we do this? Well, we always feel like we just need a little more, right? I mean, no one's ever really content with what they have. And there's always someone with more than I have. And so I developed this idea. Now, here's the irony. If you live in America, 2013, right now, this moment in, in the history of the world, you are the rich and there's no way you can get around it. Even if you don't have a job and you get like social security benefits or unemployment benefits or no benefits, if you're in America living, alive, breathing, going to Mickey D's or going to an emergency room, you are the rich. We are all rich. U.S. citizens ran across some statistics. Currently in the lowest 5% income bracket, income bracket in America, 5% lowest, total poverty, are still richer than 70% of the remaining citizens of the world today. 5% lowest in America, still wealthier than 70% of the rest of the world. The poorest Americans, the bottom five, still enjoy a greater wealth than the richest 5% in the emerging nation of India. If you were to place America in context to world history, the poorest 1% of Americans today are easily, hands down, among the top 1% wealthiest people of all time. It's unbelievable. So when Jesus talks about, when he issues these warnings, for those who have riches, it's difficult. For those who trust in, in riches, it's difficult. Who is he talking to? Not the guy next to you or that neighborhood you pass on the way. Not your boss. It's you. And so we should take this warning very seriously. But then Jesus makes a statement. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is kind of a controversial statement with a shrouded in a lot of mystery. What is Jesus really saying? Now, we know that the eye of a needle, and if you've ever sewed or if you're a seamstress or you just can picture a needle, you have the point on one end, and then you have a little loop at the top end in which the thread uh, kind of, you know, goes in and is connected to the needle itself. That way, as the needle goes through the fabric, it's pulling along with it the thread. Very, very small, small, small eye of the needle or a little hole at the top of the needle. So what is Jesus saying? That it is easier for a camel to go through such a very small hole than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I think there are two theories. The first theory is that there was a gate. And you'll hear pastors say this that there was a gate located in Jerusalem called the Eye of a Needle. And you'll hear an elaborate story of which, you know, when someone was coming into the city of Jerusalem, if they were riding on a camel, it was a very difficult thing because the camel would have to get down on its knees because this gate was small. It was short. And what would they have to do? They would have to take off all of their possessions off of the camel. They'd have to lay it down before they entered the city of God. And, and though it's possible, 
the problem, there's no archaeological evidence such a gate ever existed. It's a cool story, kind of a nice little thought. It's anecdotal. There's no evidence, no proof at all that such a gate existed in Jerusalem. Which, by the way, if you ever go to Jerusalem, they're pretty certain on which gates existed and where they are because they've dug them up. There's a second theory, one that I kind of more gravitate towards. And that is that Jesus was quoting a common proverb to illustrate his point. Now, there's some debate in regards to when the proverb itself originated, this idea of a camel going through the eye of a needle. The earliest reference written down is in the Jewish Talmud, which was written after this occasion. However, the Babylonian Talmud, which at this point is probably more simply oral, does reference the proverb. But instead of using camel, the Babylonian Talmud, this oral tradition referenced an elephant. That it's difficult for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. And it's of my opinion that in Babylon, the Jews being familiar with elephants, but here in Jerusalem, in context to the time frame, in context to discussions with the disciples, they don't know, they've never seen an elephant. So if Jesus were to kind of quote the proverb using elephant, they're kind of scratching their head saying, I have no idea really what an elephant is. I can't picture it. So what does Jesus do? He removes elephant and he supplants it with the largest animal they had ever seen and that being a camel. And from this point forward, there are many examples of the proverb coming back up with the camel going through the eye of a needle. But this is theory number two. I think it explains it. Now, either way, what's the point? <laughs> like, what is Jesus saying? What's the essence of what he's saying? Jesus is making this point as clear as he can, that riches can really mess with the spiritual condition of a person. I mean, really, when it's all said and done, I think that's the core of what he's trying to communicate. If you have money and you have wealth and you don't have either of these two in check, it can be detrimental to your spiritual health. And I think this takes place with two, for two reasons. The Bible says that money can be an evil mistress. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, for the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. I've heard people say, you know, money is the root of all evil. And that's not true. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And then he says, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul places this in context to the believer. What? Being led down a tragic road because of their greed and their love for money. You know, it's true that so many of the world's atrocities are perpetrated by the wealthiest among us. Greed, the human condition, money can be an evil mistress, but it can also be a brutal master. You know, when it comes to money, you either surrender your money to Jesus or you surrender yourself to your money. It's really one or the other. You're either in servitude to it or it's in servitude to you. You either work for more money or you put your money to work for Jesus. You either rule it or it rules you. John Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest people to have ever walked on planet Earth, who for a huge section of his life had money out of whack and it almost destroyed him. You should read his story. But he makes this quote. He says, the poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but his money. And that is true. 
that money can be a brutal master. You either put it to work for Jesus or it puts you to work for it. Let me add three additional quick reasons why I think riches can be dangerous in context to the rich young ruler. And I think important for us. First, riches can produce a satisfaction with this life that removes a longing for the next. You know, I, I, I can be honest. As a poor person, in context to wealthy America, I long for heaven. Like, I long for heaven because I kind of have to go paycheck to paycheck and kind of wonder about health care and dealing with all these things. I cannot wait when I don't have to worry about it, right? When I get to heaven and, like, I don't have to pay for direct TV to watch the Braves game, you know what I mean? Like, that I don't have to worry about the cares of this world. Money can produce a satisfaction with this life that robs us for a longing that we need to have for the next, money, riches, also can produce an independence when Jesus requires total dependence. Sometimes when we have money, when we have wealth, there is this invincibility that we often carry with us, and yet Jesus is wanting us to always be dependent upon him for everything. And yet money can sometimes lull us away from that rich people. And I think this is the big point. You know, I found that people that are wealthy, by and large, are often very successful doers. Like by nature, there are people that take the bull by the horn. They have that go get them attitude. They're out there doing it. They're not waiting around. They're not, they're not takers. They want to earn things. They want to work and experience the joy of, of, of doing something and being rewarded for that thing. But here's the problem. That's not how we receive the kingdom of God. There's nothing you can do. There's no way you can earn it. It's something you have to let go of yourself and receive from God. Riches naturally have such a potent grip on man's souls that it becomes extremely difficult for that person who's a doer by nature to be a receiver as a child. Now the disciples, verse 26, they're greatly astonished. And they say among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and and said, with men it is possible, but not, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Now what Jesus is saying here, what he's communicating, is so radically different so controversial to the status quo, so contrarian to the religious way of thinking of which the disciples had grown up with, that they're only left with this logical question. They're sitting there and and they're shocked at this rich young ruler and the way Jesus deals with him and how he leaves and then what Jesus says about the rich. So wait, if the rich young ruler can't make it and the rich can't make it with all of this theology that we have that we've been taught growing up, if these two people can't make it, then who can be saved? This is their question. And Jesus' answer is profound. He says, with men, it is impossible. But not with God, for with God, all things are possible. Now, let me break this down. Because this can be a little confusing. The it. It's the object of Jesus' response. With men, it is impossible. What is he talking about? The question, who then can be saved? The it in the sentence is salvation. 
It's the way in which I make it to eternity. I make it to heaven. It's the way in which I, I, I find myself in God's favor. It, how can man be saved? And then the important word. As a matter of fact, it's, it's a word that's so important, it's not only the key to the sentence structure, it's the key to unlocking what Jesus is saying, and it is the word with. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And this word with, it's an interesting word. It literally means to accompany in the journey. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, in regards to salvation, if you're trying to find salvation with men, accompanying men in the journey, and I could see maybe even pointing to the Pharisees, pointing to this religious crowd, with them, with man, it's impossible. You'll never make it. You can never attain it. You'll never get there. But with God or accompanying God in the journey, salvation is totally possible. Now, there's some incredible theological implications to this that we're going to leave to one of our B-sides this week. But then Peter said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Now, for our understanding, you should throw in there Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, because Matthew gives us just a little bit more of what Peter says here. Therefore, what shall we have? See, we've left all, we followed you. Therefore, Jesus, what shall we have? Now, this seems like a bizarre question, but continue the context because I like to get into the story. And I see Peter. Peter's digesting it all. The rich young ruler comes. Jesus tells him, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Peter's kind of thinking, well, wait a second. Like, this rich young ruler couldn't do that, but we've done that. So what about this whole treasure thing? Like in my mind, I can see how Peter's processing this. Wait, we've sold everything. We've given it away. Like we're following you, but you told the rich young ruler who couldn't do it that he would have treasure. So wait a second. Since we've left all and followed you, what will we get? What about this treasure, Jesus? Now, before he answers, we should point out two important things about the disciples. Most of them, if not all of them, made sincere, legitimate sacrifices to follow Jesus. Peter, James, John, they gave up a lucrative fishing business to follow Jesus. Matthew was a wealthy tax collector. Most of these other guys that we've discussed or we look at that we, that we don't know much about, we can conclude they gave up something. And then Peter says, he says, we have left all. This Greek word, we have. It's a once and for all decision. Peter's saying, we got rid of it. We let go of it. We have followed you, not looking back. So Jesus answers, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last and last first. Now, right from the beginning, make an observation. Jesus is saying, he's telling Peter, that the sacrifices that they had made to follow Jesus would be reciprocated in two ways. He says, in this time and 
and the age to come. I think in this point, Christians, pastors, miss a golden opportunity. You know, most of the time, our big selling point, and it really should be a good selling point, it's eternal life versus hell, right? Heaven versus hell. And that's kind of our selling point to people. Hey, when you die, do you want to go to hell? No. So go to heaven. Get saved. Follow Jesus. We emphasize what comes after death as the big selling point to following Jesus. And let's, for the record, that's a good point. Good point to be made. But Jesus makes it also clear that following him does not just produce a blessing or a reward in the age to come, but he makes it clear when in this time. You see, I don't think we often emphasize enough the true blessing and benefit that we get when we follow Jesus now. Like the blessing we receive now, today, the life that Jesus gives us in the here and now, in this time. Jesus compares the sacrifice we made with the blessings we'll receive. This is how he addresses this question. And he begins with a presentation. He presents the sacrifices that we might make to follow him. He says, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. You'll note that Jesus uses the word or and the Greek construction of his sentence. And the word itself indicates a particular and emphatic emphasis on each individual word which means that Jesus is not presenting a list of everything you should sacrifice to follow him. He's rather emphasizing things that had been sacrificed. The emphasis is on them individually, not cumulative. And I can see him doing this. As he's there teaching the disciples, he's going around individually. I I almost see a pause. That there is no one who has left, he points house, like individually. You gave up a house. You guys gave up a brother or maybe a sister or a wife or a mom or a dad or land. He's running through this individually laying out specific things that have been sacrificed. It's not a list. But then he continues by then stating some of the blessings that God will, will, will give us. Who shall not receive, he says, a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. Now you'll note, in the first instance, describing the sacrifices we might make, he lists them out individually, using the word or. But when he begins to list out the blessings we'll receive from the sacrifices we've made, he uses in the construction of the sentence, the word and, which means what? That the emphasis is on the list, not the individual points. That Jesus is listing out, this is what you would receive if you've made these or any of these sacrifices. It's kind of like Jesus is telling the disciples, if you sacrificed this or this or this, this is what you'll get back. This, and this, and this, and this. You make a sacrifice, and what does God do? He far gives back way more than you ever gave up. That's the point Jesus is making. The blessings we'll receive in following Jesus will far outweigh any sacrifice that we might have made. 
And why is this the case? Well, it's because God's just that good. That God is our heavenly Father who takes care of his kids. And when a sacrifice is made, Jesus does heap blessings, not because we've earned it, but because he just loves us. That The blessings we receive is not based upon the reciprocation of, all, uh, of anything we did, but just simply who we are as children, as children. But then I think it should also be pointed out that why does God always give back more than we gave up? Like you've heard the average the, that you can't outgive God. You've heard that? That no matter what you give, like God will always give more. And it's true. Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us concerning God that God will be a debtor to no man. That God will simply ensure that no one will ever be able to say, God, I gave up that. And you only gave back this. You owe me. That's not how God rolls. God will be a debtor to no man. Yeah, you gave up that, and then I gave all this, so you'll never be able to say, you owe me. I love that about God. He's that good, he'll be a debtor to no man, and he cares for us. But I love this list. I really do. Note, he says houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, and persecution. We don't really like the last one, but we like the other ones, right? And what is he saying? If, you, if you're following Jesus, that takes a sacrifice. It does. Something you'll let go of to follow him. In order to receive, we must have empty hands. And often to have empty hands, we must let go of something. And he's saying, if you've let go, if you're following me, this is what I'll give you. Now, what I love about it is that I, I think it's all relational. I mean, yeah, you can make the, the point that houses and lands might indicate some kind of a monetary deal. But, but even then, what happens in a house? What's the emphasis of a house? A house is, it's, it's, a, it's a family. It's a gathering. It's a point of connection. It's community. Same with lands. You know, when it's all said and done, what will we take, us, what will we take with us to eternity? Well, we will take with us to eternity memories and friends family. And this is one of the things that I've personally loved about the church. No matter what I've given up, you know what I got in return? A really big family. And I look around and I see the women with these corsage pendant things signifying the moms. And you know what? Yeah, I have, I have a godly mother, biologically connected. But you know the one thing that runs deeper than, than biology? Spirit. The one thing that runs deeper than blood? Spirit. That I have many mothers and brothers and sisters and family. And isn't that really the bigger blessing? Because it's these connections that I'll what? That I'll take with me forever. That when we worship God together, when we study his word together, this is just practice. It's the warm-up. 
for what we're going to be doing together as family forever. And I think that's so glorious. And Jesus is saying, you gave up things. And I recognize it. And you'll be rewarded. Whether it's in this life or the life to come, eternal life. But then he lists all of these relational connections. And I love it. You know, if my house burnt down, I would have houses to go to. If a tornado wiped away my land, there's countless number of you that would open up your home in a heartbeat for me and my family. And vice versa. Because that's what you do when you're family. Jesus says, but many who are last, but first will be last and last first. Now, this is a concept that Jesus introduced in Mark 9, 35. And as the disciples are journeying, journeying from Capernaum, when it was mentioned all the way to Jerusalem, it's been the source of all of Jesus' teaching. And I think that Jesus brings up this concept again, and Mark reiterates it as a point of signifying a transition. Because we're going to see, as we continue our way through chapter 10 and then into chapter 11, that the tone, that the essence, though Jesus will revisit the idea, things begin to change. We've kind of been on a run here of one thought leading to the next thought, to the next thought, to the next thought. And that's not an accident as Mark is recounting the story from Peter's perspective. But at this point, this thought is reintroduced not because it sets the stage for what's next, but I think in many ways it brings to close where we're at, which makes it a fitting place for us to wrap up this morning. So if you join me, Father, we thank you for your word and what it says to us.